I think I sang a little too loud and I blew a gasket this morning. So uh, forgive me if I'm a little froggy this morning. I wasn't in the first service, I promise. Well, you saw that little teaser video, and I think that that's a, a really good thing for us to be studying in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a great book, 13 short chapters, but there literally is something for everyone in this book. Uh, we have a, a guy who is in our first service, joined the church here recently. He's a Civil War reenactor, and so he wasn't here last Sunday because he was fighting the battle of Gettysburg. And so he sent me some pictures, and I said, Wayne, you're going to love this because the story of Nehemiah is kind of like reading a general's diary. As Nehemiah is engaged in spiritual warfare and the task of marshalling God's people to get, get a task accomplished, you see the general's mindset. It's a personal memoir of a man who had served as the cupbearer to, to a foreign king and yet was made the governor of the holy city of Jerusalem. And so not only did he have to fight the enemies, he had to manage a civic project of uh, constructing a wall. And so we've got people here who are responsible for constructing streets in Charlotte. And imagine if you had to put a wall around an entire city, and that was what Nehemiah did. If the wall was down, that was bad news for the city because your families were unsafe, the temple was unsafe, your city was in shambles. And so he had this civic project, but he was also this wonderful civic and manager. And so Nehemiah kind of is a handbook on leadership and management. What I love about that little uh, bumper video is that sometimes we, we, we do water down the message to make Nehemiah sound like something that Donald Trump wrote on how to be successful as a business person. And, and, and while those principles may indeed be true, this book is included in Holy Scripture and, and is inspired by God, ironically, not to make much of the man after whom it's named after, Nehemiah, but to recall to our minds the priority of, like Nehemiah, living, elevating, as we sang this morning, for the glory of God. Building, not just so that he gets a nice little plaque that says, you know, established by Nehemiah XXX, or I guess it would be a negative number, um, whatever it would be for, you know, his before Christ, uh, his date, but it's an interesting book. And part of the reason we're going there is, is over the last um, several weeks and months, uh, we have had conversations about a capital campaign. Uh, many of you who have been here for years know this, but some of you who have not been here for a long time, our church has been in a relocation conversation um, depending on who you talk to, for up to 30 years. That's a long time. And we are in the process of really trying to say, how can we kind of, kind of establish a beachhead, get started? Because there are people who have given sacrificially to this project for many years. And we have a responsibility as the next generation who's going to inherit to sacrifice in a similar way so that they get to see it too. Not just that we get to benefit from it. And so we're going to spend some time in, in Nehemiah because Nehemiah is focused on a construction project. But his goal was not building the wall. His goal was building the people. And in the same way, in American Christianity, we have some really messed up concepts. We talk about going to church. How do you do that? You can go to a church building, but is, is this the church? No, not by a long shot. The church is the people of God, not the building. The building is a tool. And so one of the things that we're, we're wanting to do is, last year, I think it was June, we began a consultation process with a company called Oxano. And uh, their goal is to 
make churches alive with vision. And a lot of churches kind of operate on this kind of very general and fuzzy concept, which is why almost every church in America looks identical. You rip the name off the bulletin and you put your church's name on it. And when you go to another church next week, what they do and what the programs are they offer, we're so busy copying each other that we forgot that God made us individuals. There are things that God has inspired our church to do that there are 10,000 churches that can't do what Northside Baptist does. Sometimes we get so caught up trying to keep up with the Joneses that we don't play to our own strengths and recognize the gifts and the passions and the abilities that God has given us. And so the consultation process with this company called Exano was really a, a great thing. And so over the next eight weeks, nine weeks, we're going to be exploring um, what does God's word say when it comes to a vision for a church? What are we aiming at? Because if we only have a general sense of direction, then we'll only have a general and lukewarm uh, idea of success. And that's just not acceptable. When we celebrate at the end of our service, the fact that God had his son shed his blood for our salvation and for uh, the remission of sins, potentially for the entire world. We can't stand idly by and be satisfied with status quo. We have to press on to new obedience. And Nehemiah talks about this. One of the things that's interesting, I don't, I, I'm not a statistic buff, although my wife does accuse me of having all kinds of useless information that rolls around inside my head. I don't know when the starting lineup of the 1974 Miami Dolphins is going to do something for me, but I know at some point that I'm going to win Trivial Pursuit or something of that sort. But here's, here's a, statist, a statistic that's not trivial. <clears throat> not just Southern Baptist churches, not just churches in our association, nationwide, 80 to 85% of churches are plateaued or declining. Now, I don't know about you, um, how long it's been since you've learned how to ride a bike. You can only coast for so long. And then what happens? You're going to fall off if you don't start working again. And the truth is, uh, I hate to say this because I don't know that it, this is going to sound strange to, uh, to, to this service. It won't sound as strange to our first service. Our culture has done changed. And the things that worked for us as a denomination and as churches in the United States don't work the same way because now, in 1950, it made sense when you got up on Sunday morning to not cut your grass on Sunday. You would be shamed publicly if you cut your grass on Sunday morning because you're supposed to be in church because that's what good Americans do. It does not make sense for anyone to go to church anymore. As a matter of fact, at the beginning of the new year, the only statistic that people who study the church could say is even your most committed members, if they, if they came four weeks a year in 2013, they'll come three weeks out of the month in 2014. Even the people who are a part of the church, they're busy. They've got kids and soccer leagues and they've got sick parents and they've got the lake house. And so we have all of these obligations pulling us. It's no wonder when God's people are not as committed to the church as perhaps they were in a previous generation, why the church has fallen upon such hard times. And so churches have got to get their mission right. And they have got to get it right with a, not a general sense of direction, but with crystal clear, laser-focused clarity. Not this broad idea. And so I think the book of Nehemiah helps us with that. And so today, we're not going to talk a whole lot specifically about uh, where we're going. Today, the whole purpose of today is to prime the pump and to ask God to work in our hearts in such a way that as we begin to hear this, God incites a holy passion in us to really strive for greater effectiveness for the glory of God. To build, certainly not for our glory, 
but for the glory of God. And so we'll be in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1. That is page uh, 342 in the Pew Bible. If you don't have your own copy of Scripture, please keep that as a gift from Northside Baptist Church to you. And there's going to be just a couple of uh, quick things that we're going to look at here. There's a listening guide in your bulletin to follow along if you are so inclined to take notes. Uh, We'll begin in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. God's word says this. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. During the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah. And I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's walls, Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned down with fire. So we look at Nehemiah's life and as we begin our series on vision for our church, we begin with this very simple principle that Nehemiah in verses 1 through 3, hears. Nehemiah hears. It's been said that through advertising that every single one of us will hear close to 30,000 advertisements over the course of this week. Now, product placement, you'll pass a Coke machine, that's an advertisement because it's going to have its nice little swirl on the side. If we see the little, little green thing on the white cup with all the arms, you know what it is. It's Starbucks. Uh, You see the golden arches. You know what it is. It's McDonald's. Um, I think it's hamburgers. Um, And so you you recognize this. But we're an overly saturated society when it comes to these images and these things that are being communicated to us. And the thing that is very dangerous is it is possible for us to hear without hearing a thing. Now, men in particular, we suffer from a disease where our wives, at least my wife tells me, it goes in one ear out the other. Anybody else suffer from that disease? Am I the only one? Thank you, Ed. I see that hand. Um, So Nehemiah hears, and he hears of a problem. Uh, It's told that in the month of Chislev, which would roughly be the Jewish calendar and our calendar are not the same, the month of Chislev would be roughly Thanksgiving. And he says in the 20th year, but he doesn't say the 20th year of what. Nehemiah is a servant to uh, the Persian king Artaxerxes. And so you have, um, if you know anything about ancient Near Eastern history, you watch those movies, the 300 with the guys with the cool abs, kill everybody. Um, We're talking that kind of era. That's the era that we're talking about. Um, Nehemiah may never have ever lived for one moment in Jerusalem. It's quite possible people just don't know. Um, It's quite possible that Nehemiah was born in captivity. Uh, His parents could have been captured by Babylon, who was then conquered by Assyria. And Nehemiah, when we're introduced to him, he's the cupbearer to the king. Very close associate, part of his royal court. And as he is serving as a man, certainly not a child, um, there's a delegation, a small group that travels up from uh, Jerusalem to Susa, where Nehemiah is serving. And it happens to be his brother. And he says, tell me what's happening in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is introduced to a problem. The Israelites are in big trouble because the wall that guards their city is broken down. And for uh, an Israelite, a Hebrew person, that wall communicated security and protection and safety because what was inside the city? Two very important things. Their homes and their temple. And if that wall is broken down, their religious life and their domestic life is imminently threatened. There is no safety and security. Now, the truth is they're in trouble because of their disobedience. 
We'll see this in just a minute. God has said very clearly, if you obey me and you follow my commands, my statutes, I will bless you. But if you turn away, there will be consequences. And they have experienced them. Now, here's the thing that's unique, I think, about Nehemiah's hearing is we all hear. We all have ears. And even if you don't hear well, there's technology to improve your hearing. Hearing is not simply the physical act of auditory capability where sound waves reverberate and the cilia in your ear translate audio sounds into some kind of digital thing that goes through your ears to your brain and communicates intelligent language. You think about that, like hearing words and communicating, that's a wonderful mystery of how the sounds that my mouth is making are, I hope, intelligible to you. And we do that. We, there are some people who can speak multiple languages. Fascinating how God has made us. But here's what's interesting about Nehemiah's hearing. His hearing is different than our hearing because look what happens in verse 4. Nehemiah feels. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You hear something. And it ticks you off. That's a Hebrew word, by the way. You get ticked off. What do you do? You make some kind of angry comment on Facebook, and then by dinner time, you've forgotten about it. Nehemiah is devastated by what he has heard. As a matter of fact, the, the word that it uses, I mean, what do you think is happening when Nehemiah hears this and it says he sat down, knocked him off his feet? Now, this is not new news. The news about Jerusalem's destruction is old news. It happened years ago. It's not like this just happened last week and this is like breaking news, the ticker at the bottom of Fox News. Walls of Jerusalem broken down. No, they've been broken down. What is killing Nehemiah is that God's people are continually living in the state of disobedience and, and brokenness and nobody's stepping up to fix the problem. They're content to kind of live with the status quo. And, and I, I think sitting, you know, you, you almost see the, the picture. Uh, I, I forget the name of the statue. I think it's called the Thinker. And it's a classic statue of the dude kind of sitting cross-legged with his, you know, his little hand on his chin and on his knee. He, he's sitting because he's overwhelmed, but he's sitting because he's contemplating. How? How has this happened? How have we gotten to this point? What chain of events have orchestrated this situation, and what do we do? And this is not just, you know, hey, let me take a five-minute time out, and then we'll get back to, you know, happy-go-lucky, cupbearer to the king. You know, everything's good, because, like, I'm with Artaxerxes, and he's kind of rolling in it. So, you know, I know Jerusalem, that's kind of the bad side of the tracks. We're all messed up. I'm living in relative comfort in the Persian Empire. Everything's cool. Artaxerxes is the most powerful person on the planet today, and I'm his cupbearer, yo. And he might even get over it. It says that he contemplated, he wept, he mourned, and he fasts. He says, God, there's a problem, and I need you more than I need food. Now, I, I, I know you. And I've heard conversations about um, heartbreak. I'll use that word, heartbreak. Maybe better heartburn over where our country is at. Heartburn you get over. Heartbreak you don't. And I think what we suffer from as Christians is heartburn more than heartbreak. Because you know, ah, 
Supreme Court, a bunch of dummies. And then we move on with life. Eh, Roe v. Wade, legalized murder of unborn infants, Planned Parenthood. Oh, we're outraged! But give it two weeks. I'm not going to change what I do. I'm not going to change how I live. But I'm, I'm outraged, so I'm going to post something on Facebook to show what a concerned citizen I am. That's not being broken. That's not being heartbroken. You vent and you get over it, and you don't realize how even the way you so quickly get over what you get over does not bring God's glory. Not only does it not change the situation, it doesn't change you. You vent, you get done with it, and then you go back to the way that you want to live. And Nehemiah feels the dishonor that is brought upon God and on God's people because of his people's disobedience. And I just ask the question, have you ever felt that? Have you wept for your own sin? Have you wept for our country's sin? Have you longed for God to do a work through our church that only he can do? Not a work that can be explained by 30 years of us saving, but a work where we all have to stand back and say, God has done something, and we had the front row seat to that. This was not a Wednesday night prayer meeting. For Nehemiah, this was a period of days where he wept and he mourned and he fasted. His hearing and his feeling led to a third action. In verses 5 through the beginning of verse 11, Nehemiah prays. He prays. And I want you to realize something. Prayer for us kind of becomes a perfunctory act. You know, I don't know if you've ever asked someone to, you've ever seen this. I haven't seen this here. But you ask, you know, you call on somebody. I don't usually call on people with no warning to pray. Like even today when we do the Lord's Supper, we'll have deacons that pray. I ask them beforehand so they can think. You know, like using our minds in church is a good thing. God says love them with our heart, love them with our mind. So I want people to think about what they're going to pray about. But you ever, uh, you've seen the guy who gets called on to pray, kind of boom. Jonathan Brown, would you pray for us? You know, Jonathan has to wake up really quick. Um, sorry. <laughs> He, he was fully awake. I'm just picking on him. Um, he's tall. He's, he, he, I, he makes good eye contact easy. And then he's, oh, oh okay. <clears throat> God, we thank you for our food. Oh, wait. <laughs> because we get stuck in our rut with our prayer. And so here's the thing that's interesting. Nehemiah is connected to the court of the most powerful man on the planet. He is like chief of staff of the president of the world. Okay? Not the president of the United States, the uh, Persian Empire. And he is chief of staff for Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes is not missing anything that he wants in life. He's got it all. And even though Nehemiah is in a special position, better than anyone else on the face of the planet to have the ear of the king, what's the very first thing that he does? He prays. Nehemiah has the ear of the king, and he has a disposition of being a type A, get-her-done kind of man. He's a man of action, but he turns to prayer as his first resort because he understands that engagement with God is a prerequisite to any kind of engagement that he's going to do that is going to be successful. So I ask the question, when it comes to your prayer life, is your prayer life the first resort 
or is your prayer life the last resort? You know, the kid who goes to school, and even though the teacher told them four times before, you know, four week, four times last week that they're going to have a test on Monday, he shows up on Monday and goes, oh, Dear God, help me on my test. Well, you didn't give God a whole lot to work with because you didn't study. So um, good luck with that. They've said, you know, uh, prayer in school might be outlawed, but it'll never go away. As long as teachers keep giving tests, there will be prayer in school. But for most of us, like that kid who was warned but just didn't take the time to prepare, most of us, prayer is the last resort and not the first resort. So let's take a peek at this prayer that Nehemiah prays in verses 5 through 11. God's word says, I said, Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and awe-inspiring God, who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands, let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly toward you, and we have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave to your servant Moses. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the ends of the earth, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. They are your servants and your people. You redeem them by your great power and strong hand. So please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Like the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, this prayer is awesome because while it is extraordinarily brief, it is exceedingly deep. Deeper than an ocean when you consider its content. To whom did Nehemiah pray this prayer? Uh, It's laid out in your outline. There are several things that Nehemiah notes that God, this one to whom he is praying, is the awesome God of heaven. Nehemiah prays to God in the midst of all this difficulty and apathy and destruction and shame because he knows that regardless of what is happening here on earth, that there is one in heaven who sits on the throne, who's not surprised by anything. He is the awesome God of heaven. He's fearful. But that's not where he stops. Because while God is awesome in his power and in his sovereignty, in verses 5 and 6, we're told that he is the gracious, covenant-keeping God. That just as he promised, if you obey, there will be blessings. If you disobey, there will be curses. We see third, that he is the holy one who punishes sin. You see, God was faithful to his word. He said, go this way and it will be good for you. Go this way and it will be bad for you. And even still today, we don't get it because we mess our lives up and then we blame God for our disobedience. Oh, God, just, you know, this happened to me. Well, you did it. If God was simply faithful to tell you in your disobedience, you will be cursed. Turn that finger around at yourself. God, in his... uh, punishing of sin 
is proving his faithfulness to his word. God would be a liar if he did not punish sin. And this is why Jerusalem is in the shape that it is. It's amazing because at this point, we don't know anything about Nehemiah. We're in chapter one. We're just getting to know him. And if there's anything we see about Nehemiah from the introduction in this prayer is that Nehemiah is a man of exceedingly deep godliness and zeal for God's glory. And yet in his prayer, what does he say about this God who punishes sin? He says, God, I have sinned and every son is to bring honor to his father. And he says, in my father's household has sinned. All of us have sinned. He expresses solidarity with his people. If you're a visitor with us today, I can say uh, from my own experience and from the experience of many people that you have perhaps uh, in your own experience, from your own perspective, stumbled into what I think is the most uh, loving, gracious, kind, sacrificially generous church in Rock Hill, if not the United States. Uh, when, when we think about uh, what's important for our church, this is a trick question, what's the most important thing about our church? It's our senior pastor, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's my pastor. I can't be effective in any way, shape, or form without him leading. I don't have anything that's worth following in myself. You know, we'll go back to the trivial pursuit stuff. I can give you trivia stuff, but God, the Lord, as our pastor, gives us his instructions to follow. Gives me my playbook that I'm supposed to coach according to. But from a human perspective, the best thing about our church is its people. I mean, our lives, all of us could give testimony to the ways that we have been touched by the people that make up this congregation. So grateful for the people that God has given to us. But like Nehemiah, what's the biggest problem with our church? It's our people. It's you and me. I love the way G.K. Chesterton, the great uh, Christian philosopher, theologian, and apologist, was asked right after World War II, you know, nobody thought there would be another world war after World War I. World War I was the war to end all wars. And then everyone is just devastated that another conflagration, another world war has happened. And somebody asked G.K. Chesterton, uh, it was one of my favorite quotes, said, uh, uh, Professor Chesterton, what is wrong with the word? What wrong with the world? And he did, you know, the little thinker pose like philosophers do. If he had a goatee, he stroked it and kind of contemplated and thought for a second. Do you know what the problem with the world is? It's me. He's right. The best thing about our church, from a human perspective, is our people. And the worst thing about our church is our own disobedience. We have to, like Nehemiah, identify. We can't... If the problems in your life are always someone else's, you have a much bigger problem than you realize. Oh, you know, it's this person. It was that person. It was this person. No, it wasn't. Realize your own part to play. Like the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was supposed to be a magnet, a lighthouse to the nations that attracted people to itself. When Jesus gave the, gave the Great Commission, the metaphor changed because the church is not supposed to be a magnet. The church is supposed to be a missionary. And so regardless of what you actually do to earn a living, you are, if you are a Christian and you understand the word, you are a missionary. 
Some of you will be missionaries to the post office. Some of you will be missionaries to the public school system. Some of you will be missionaries to Bellwater. Some of you will be missionaries to BP. Some of you will be missionaries to your neighborhood, but you are called to be a missionary. Let me ask you, here's a little performance evaluation. How are you doing? Have you done everything that you could? If you could rewind life's videotape, would you want a do-over? When it comes to the most essential mission of the church, which is the Great Commission, we have failed. There's no other way to explain that up to 85% of our churches are in the process of dying because we basically provide religious entertainment and we don't actually disciple anyone. Now, I don't know that that's true about our church, but let's, let's not get real proud of our own track record Let's not take the worst examples to compare ourselves favorably with them. Is there more that we could do to disciple people? Listen, it doesn't make sense to go to church anymore. That means today, if you're a Christian, you've got to be smarter than your forefathers were. Because you have to answer questions that they never got asked. It's just this, it's the times that we're in. We have to know more. We have to be able to give an answer for the hope that we have. And the whole reason that Nehemiah is praying to this God, not only is he the awesome God in heaven, the gracious covenant keeper, the one who punishes sin, he prays to him because he knows God can fix it. Verse 10, he says that he is the strong redeemer. He has redeemed his people, and if his people will repent in turn, he will redeem them again. It's an awesome truth. So in verse 11, Nehemiah acknowledges something that is important. He says, please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, namely me, and to that of your servants, namely Hanani and the group that came with him, who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and have compassion, basically saying, on me in the presence of this man. Who's this man? Artaxerxes, the king. And then he drops the bombshell. At that time, I was the king's cupbearer. We don't know this. We just... Nehemiah is a layperson who's really upset and devastated by this, and then we find out who he is. And he is acknowledging, he's already revealed who God is through his prayer. He's this awesome, gracious, punishing, strong, redeeming one. And then he says who he is. I'm the cupbearer to the king. And he realizes that he has a role to play. He can't just say, oh, God, fix it. He does like Isaiah says, fix it and um, send me. I may not be able to do much, but it's not good for me to point the finger and not say, let me help. It's interesting that Nehemiah got it right. Once he has addressed God, he's now ready to engage with the earthly powers that are there. Because as a man of action, he might say, all right, Hanani, let's go see art and get this taken care of, man. We're going to establish a commission, have a committee. We're going to get this done, work on the resources, recruit people. No, because he knew it would be idolatry to go to a human leader before he went to the divine leader. But now that he has prayed and now that he has sought God, he knows, listen, the body needs every part. I just got finished reading a World War II novel and uh, 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 graphic in what happens in war. Not a good thing. Body needs every part. 
Now, not every part may be equally um, significant or maybe not used as often, but I guarantee you uh, there's nobody kind of getting ready to say, hey, yeah, get rid of my right hand, uh, get rid of my arm, get rid of my leg. That's not a good thing. The body needs every part. And Nehemiah expresses solidarity both with God's people and with God. And he says, I have a responsibility and I will do whatever you want. And if that means going and talking to the king and potentially putting my life on the line by what I'm going to ask him, I will do it. And then the last thing, and I think this is really sweet, Nehemiah persists. We've seen that he began praying, that he is uh, formulating already in his mind this course of action. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, During the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king, and I had never been sad in his presence before. Now we know that Hanani and his group came to uh, Susa in Chislev, which was roughly Thanksgiving. Uh, the month of Nisan is roughly Easter. So from Thanksgiving to Easter, Nehemiah has dedicated himself to mourning and praying and fasting. And as we'll see next week, preparing what God has set upon his heart to encourage God's people to do. He persists. He continues to pray because he, know that God, he knows that God controls the outcome. And as we'll see in chapter 2, when he gets the chance to talk to the king, he's ready. He's got a plan. He's got great goals. He's got a mission. He's got a strategy. But he knows that no matter how well laid his plans are, without prayer, there is no success. So the same is true for us. Before we start talking about bricks and budgets, because you know what? The building is not our end goal. When we get a little bit more into talking about building and we talk about what we're going to build, listen, we're not going to fight over the color of the carpet. That's dumb. And there are people who don't go back to church because somewhere along the line there was a church somewhere that wanted to fight over what color the walls were painted, what color the carpet was. The building is a tool. What we are building is our church, and we just happen to be building a building to help us accomplish our mission. Before we get into those details, what's important for us to do is to seek God in prayer. Because if uh, current events are any indication of where our country is going, there are dark days ahead for American Christianity. Here's kind of the pseudo good news. Um, The darker it gets, the less bright you have to shine to really stand out. Listen, a dim bulb can give a lot of light to a dark room. But is that kind of mediocrity what we feel like God deserves from us? Do we want to be a dim bulb in an increasingly dark room? Or do we want to burn out for the glory of God? And so I am calling upon our church now, today, formally to prayer, to ask for God to work on our own hearts, to say we may not even be able to conceive of the things that God has in store for a church that is sold out for his glory. As a matter of fact, this Wednesday, when we begin our meals and we start back up, we're going to have a prayer laboratory on Wednesday night, and we're going to have several of these. Um, Some of you have done prayer walks, some of you haven't, so we're going to have a lab to teach you what to do, so that when we tell you to go do it, you know what to do. And so we're going to ask for you to prayer walk your own home. Walk through every room in your house and pray for that room, for the occupants of that room, for what happens in that room, for the desires that come out of that room, everything that happens in that room. We're going to ask for you to prayer walk your neighborhood, to pray for your neighbors whose names you may not know. 
We're going to have one Wednesday night where we're dedicated to our whole programming, just being walking around our campus and praying for our babies, to our teenagers, to our senior adults, and asking God to be glorified. And we'll conclude by using a Wednesday night to go out to our new property and to prayer walk that, because we want this entire process to be bathed, covered, saturated, filled up to the brim with prayer. And I just ask the question, what if? And asking for God's increased favor upon his people. What would happen if God answered our prayers? What would that look like? What would it look like? Oh, we'd have a jacuzzi for a baptismal pool. Contrary to the health and wealth preachers, we would not all get a clean bill of health and we would not necessarily have ivory uh, fixtures in the bathroom. God doesn't promise that kind of physical blessing. But what if his blessing was that Northside Baptist Church had the opportunity to be faithful in accomplishing the Great Commission in ways that we've not even dreamed of yet? It's possible. But only when God's people are more focused on God than they are the project that's in front of them. And so friends, I want to invite you to pray. And if Wednesday nights are not a normal thing for you, I want you to come this week and I want you to be a part of the prayer journeys that we're going to take. Because the best laid plans of mice and men are nothing if God's blessing is not upon it. Pray with me, please. God, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to hear from your word. And we ask that you help us to seek your face diligently. And this book of Nehemiah is not about Nehemiah. It's about the God of Nehemiah. And God, may we have born in our own hearts and souls a passion for your glory that will burn bright. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.